This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are. Even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. Hello and welcome to episode 194 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today we welcome Jonathan Ford from Unwed Sailor and Roadside Monument. Jonathan and I have been trying to make this happen for years as we connect via mutual friends or at a show. Most recently in Brooklyn, back before the pandemic, we ended up talking for a long time after a show that he played as Unwed Sailor. And it went places where you don't expect a conversation to go, and all of a sudden you get a text or a bartender goes, yeah, it's closing time. So I wanted to do that again. So Jonathan and I uh, got back together, and we talked about his music career from his early bands to Roadside Monument and his latest album, Truth or Consequences, from Unwind Sailor, that is out now on Spartan Records. And as with any guests that got to take in the 90s, I was smitten with his stories of Seattle, Tulsa and what laid the groundwork for his musical taste, ideals, and also where he is today. If you've never heard of either band or you are a huge fan, you're going to enjoy Jonathan's stories. Thank you to all the Patreon supporters out there. You make this podcast happen. If you want to support, head on over to patreon.com slash washedupemo. This is episode 194 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with Jonathan Ford. From Unwed Sailor and Roadside Monument. Yeah, I was thinking about that too in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember you. I think you like you were show jumping that night. You were like bouncing around. Yes, to I a for- couple different shows. I forget which one you were, but it was definitely it was we. I made it to Brooklyn, so I'm sure there was something else. But yeah. uh, the, the timing worked out. I thought it was it was uh, it was fun, and you know we had got to catch up a little bit, and we were kind of rapping back and forth. And I just want to say what I remember most about the conversation was chatting about bands. And then you were so positive and encouraging. Um, I don't know if I sounded like, you know, despondent or something, but I just remember you being so positive about, um, you know, everything to do with, you know, music and things. So I don't know. I'm just excited to chat with you again about all that stuff. Oh, cool, man. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. This is, uh, I, I've done a, a couple of, um, I don't know, not podcasts, but like what video casts or whatever. Right. Uh, for this record. But, but you're definitely the one I'm looking forward or was looking forward to the most. Oh, awesome. I'm even sh- even with Greg from Me Without You, that one was super fun, but I was looking forward to yours more. Was it hard to get into music? No, dude. For me, it was easy to get into music because music was like my savior. Right. You know, that that's what saved me from all that. Uh, like skateboarding and, and uh, punk, you know, uh, that's what saved me from the clutches of religion and conservatism in the, you know, in the Midwest. Um, yeah, man, like, you know, just hearing minor threat for the first time in the eighties when you're going to like a Christian school and every day you go to your school, you have to have a certain dress on your certain dress code, like, no outside pockets on your pants, you know, your hair has to be over, you know, over, over the top of your ear and uh, over the top of your earlobe. You know, just all these rules and regulations all the time, constantly eyes on you. And then you hear minor threat. It, it's just the most freeing thing in the world. And so that, Minor Threat wasn't the first punk band I discovered, but in that in that uh, that time period when I discovered skateboarding and punk rock, it just it revolutionized my life. It just gave me an out, you know. It gave me a way out of that. How how did you find other things? Was it scenes? Was there a local store? Was there siblings or relatives that were like, "Here's what's," or did you have to find it on your own? Mostly on my own. Uh, but you know, it look a lot of it was through Thrasher. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you you pick up Thrasher magazine and look at the skate rock section, and just you know find buy every band in that <laughs> in mm-hmm. the skate rock section. You know, or mail order the skate rock cassette. Totally. Uh, you know, and then you know there there wasn't a real there wasn't a uh, a huge scene here either. Uh, you know, this, this was in the eighties. So, you know, we didn't have the Nirvana breakthrough at that point. So, you know, it was still like, you know, there was a handful of skaters out there just trying not to get run over by the jocks and stuff. (laughs) You know what I mean? They're like that. It was that whole scene. It was, it was very eighties movie, I guess. No, it sounds like, I mean, and it was, it, it felt, you know, yeah, you you ordered from Thrasher. You waited. It wasn't instant, right? <laughs> oh no, no, no. Yeah, Eb- Ebullition too was a huge was a huge help here. You know, being able to order records through them. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of mail order, a lot of you know, going out skating one day, and then you know you're at like a ditch somewhere, and whoa, there's like another skater over there, and he's wearing Vans. You know, it's like lifelong friend, like this instant connection, you know, and then so you're skating with him that day. And he's like, hey, have you heard this band Agent Orange? I'm like, no, who's that? And he's like, well, hey, like, 
you know, let's go skate next weekend and I'll bring you a cassette. It, you know, it was that kind of thing. It was just so like, um, it was just so special, really. That kind, that kind of connection uh, that you could make with people during that time. And I think too, you know, those bands. Whenever you you find a band that way, you know, where one day you're out and you run into a guy that is doing the same thing you're doing and you haven't found anyone else who's doing that for months. And then they introduce a band to you. I mean, that band becomes really special and that cassette becomes really special. And it's all you listen to, you know, for the next month. Totally. Or, you know, every, every agent orange song on that cassette, like up and down. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's some really beautiful, uh, things that come from that kind of isolation. Um, Cause when you finally do make those connections, it's just these beautiful Eureka moments that change your life forever. Uh, during that time for me, uh, I wasn't playing music yet, mm -hmm. but the, the intense laser focus I would have on a new band I discovered or a new album where I would just sit there for, for the night and just listen to it over and over and over, just flip the cassette over, over and over. And I never got tired of it. It just melted into my brain and my being. Uh, and um, yeah, there was something so beautiful about that. And I, I, I still have not gotten used to streaming. Like I stream a lot, but there, there's something about making a connection with an album in the way that I did then in the way that I do now, that's just so different. Uh, and sometimes it makes me a little sad because, because I miss diving into that record over and over again for hours. And it, it's funny. Sometimes I'll, uh, I'll grab a CD, you know, like a couple months ago, it was like, I, I just grabbed REM monster mm -hmm. and I put it in my car and I said, okay, for a week, this is the record I'm listening to and I'm just diving in like every day. And, and it was really fun. And it kind of brought me back to those days where I just knew every little thing about the record. And it, it almost, the record almost starts becoming a part of you. And um, yeah, I just, I, I just miss, miss that. And I want more of that in my life, that intimate connection with a record and a, and a band. I think it's that sort of ramp up to like not knowing what the band sounds like when you go to the show or your friend just told you, told you, Hey, it's agent orange and agent orange. It sounds like X, Y, and Z, you know, and you're, you're in that 10 or 15 minutes on the way home and you know, nothing, you don't know what they look like. Right. You don't know anything. And that unknown, I think, especially in this time period we're going to talk about, is that sort of last moment where there's these unknowns that that feeling, I think, is what we're talking about, is that that's, that's the last time you had that. Yes. And, and the unknown, that's a great point. I, I miss not knowing what a band looks like. Um, like, I can think of so many examples when like for example uh i don't know what it was whenever the polvo shapes record came out mm -hmm. 
uh, I was living in Seattle and they were playing at the crocodile. So me and some friends drove up and I, you know, I had never seen Polvo. I had no idea what they looked like, but I, I loved the records. So we're walking up to the club and, and there's the van parked outside, you know, and you know, that's their van. And all of a sudden the door opens and the band walks out of the van and every one of them had these like huge, like puffy starter jackets on. <laughs> and they were, and they were just seemed so tall and just like this menacing presence. And it just blew my mind. You know, I was like, okay, did I see Polvo walk out of a van with starter jackets on? And every <laughs> one of them had a starter jacket on. And it just blew my mind. And it made me love them even more. And it just gave me this, that was my first impression of Polvo as people. And I'll never forget it. So, you know, and just having those kind of experiences too, or, you know, another one would be the first time I saw the Jesus lizard. It, they actually came to Oklahoma and it was, I think it was 1993 or 94 and I saw him at a college and I, I had bought the liar cassette and loved the re that record so much, but had no idea what they looked like. Um, I, I sensed that it was probably going to feel really dangerous watching them play mm -hmm. <laughs> or it was going to be pretty wild. And they played in this little room on cam on campus and, you know, it's a pretty typical Jesus Lizard story. You know, I'm, I'm standing on the front row waiting for them to play. And uh band comes out and they kick into, you know, they start playing. And it just sounds amazing. And I'm like, okay, well, where's the singer? You know, nowhere. And then all of a sudden this door flies open, the backstage door. <laughs> and David Yao just comes running full force towards us and just plows through me and everyone else in the front row, just, you know, screaming, I can't swim. <laughs> you know, I mean, and that, that changed my life forever. Had no idea what this dude looked like. And I had about <laughs> five seconds of seeing him run towards me and just bust, you know, bust me down on the ground pretty much. That was my introduction to David Yao. You know, I'd never seen a photo of him before or whatever. And, so, yeah, I mean, those kind of moments in your life just change you forever. And I, I miss I, I miss having those. I want more of those. And I, I'm such a nostalgic person, too. Mm -hmm. Like, I, every day I'm so nostalgic about something. <laughs> so I think that makes me miss that era even more. Um, you know, like the 80s for me are... Uh, they're just still so magical. Like, you know, watching an eighties movie or listening to eighties music, it, it just always makes me feel good no matter what. Uh, so I think, you know, I love being so nostalgic, but sometimes I think it hinders me from moving forward too, in a way. That makes sense. Yeah, no, you're right. It's, 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 you're stuck somewhere. Um, yeah you mentioned the Jesus Lizard show. Is there other ones that shaped either what, uh, you know, you're playing or um, what stuff you got into? Going back to the live thing, uh, I, 
as we were talking, another band I feel like that's really still super special uh, when you talk about them as seeing them live uh, is Fugazi. Uh, I, I saw them in Olympia in 96 or 97. And that was a show that, you know, changed my life forever, for sure. I mean, it, you, I think anyone who's ever seen Fugazi has, has, said, has said that. <laughs> I mean, they were just such a, uh, just such a beautiful, intuitive band. Uh, and their live show was just so insane. Um, so definitely that. I was just thinking of that. But as far as like bands that I just got into uh, growing up, I, I would say New Order is my favorite band of all time. Uh, Peter Hook, the bass player in New Order, by far favorite bass player of all time. Um, yeah, they were a huge influence on me musically. Uh, e even, uh, especially in Umwood Sailor, as I progressed with Umwood Sailor and was putting out records, I started hearing Peter Hook in my playing more and more. And I started realizing how much I was influenced by his bass playing. And I didn't really realize it. It just kind of started creeping up on me. Describe that for somebody that maybe doesn't know New Order or what his sound is and, and, and the band to be able to kind of have them make a connection. Well, new, well, Peter Hook, Peter Hook's bass playing, he plays the bass a lot like a guitar player would play a guitar solo, but just imagine a very, very tasteful guitar solo with only a handful of notes and the handful of notes almost mimic a vocal melody. Like he, Peter Hook wrote a lot of the hooks in the New Order songs, in my opinion. Like those simple lead bass lines that just grab you and hook you right into the song. And New Order was a band that combined like alternative rock elements in the eighties and mixed it with dance music. So it was just this, you know, really accessible at times, mm -hmm. but at the same time had this kind of dark undercurrent to it. Uh, so it was just the perfect combination to me. And uh, yeah, I, I just, I love, still love everything they've ever done. Uh, they, they, they're just the perfect band to me in my mind. I mean, I can, and now that you're saying that I can totally hear that. Like with definitely with Unwed Sailor, it's, you know, the, the bass, which is usually behind is leading. Yes. Yeah. He, he's, you know, for, for a lot of new order songs, he's front and center. And he's, he's pulling the song with him. And uh, from what I understand, I, I've read every book I could find on New Order. And from what I understand, a lot of times uh, Bernard Sumner would, the singer, uh, the vocalist and guitar player, would shape his vocal lines uh, around Peter Hook's bass lines. So... 
yeah, it's just amazing how Peter Hook could just, you know, these simple like four note bass lines really shaped a lot of the songs. I love that. So when you, what about your, what about starting to play bass for you? You had this influence, like, was it, did it, did it come easy? What about those first few bands, the ones that everybody has, like, were you able to express yourself that way? No, I mean, it was more like just real, like primal expression, right. you know, it, like Peter Hook didn't even come into the picture at that point. They, they were kind of like thrash bands, you know, where I'm just, um, you know, you start the band with your friends and nobody wants to play bass. So I'm like, well, I guess I'll be the bass player. You know, <laughs> I, it can't be that hard. I just hit, there's only four strings and, oh, I love how like it makes the low sound, you know, and I can just like hit that, that low E string as hard as I can, you know, and just chug on it. So that was kind of my thinking at first. Uh, so yeah, it was just those kind of bands, you know, uh, just making noise and trying to be as heavy as you could be, you know, what other stuff um, were you getting into at the time while you were in these bands? Oh, during that time, it would be stuff like, uh, it was just, it was just coming out of the eighties. So I, I liked a lot of the, uh, the pop eighties metal. Like I loved White Lion. Uh, I was a big Warrant guy. Van Halen. Uh, Warrant was great. Yeah. Uh, Van Halen. I, I I don't know if I they would be thrown into the pop metal category, but um, gosh, what else? Um, I I was even getting into like like really underground bands in that scene, like bands like Taiketo mm -hmm. and South Gang. <laughs> like stuff like that, you know, um, page 88 of metal edge, not page eight. <laughs> right. Totally. Totally. <laughs> and, you know, um, an another thing about that whole scene is in Oklahoma, for the most part, those are the only kind of bands that were coming through and playing shows, you know, at that time. So if you wanted to go see a show, it was like, Oh, well, um, you know, the Scorpions are playing, uh, you know, sometimes you'd get like pan, like we got Pantera one time. That's huge. Uh, you know, that kind of, um, but a lot of the shows that came through were just larger shows and there were those kind of bands. So, uh, I liked that stuff, but at the same time, it was kind of my only option a lot of times to, to see live music. And then, um, as we got into the nineties, uh, there started to become like more like alternative bands would come through. Like, you know, I got to see mud honey, um, this band bark market. Oh, I New love York. bark market. Yeah. They, they were huge for me. Uh, cause they, they would play Tulsa all the time. And every time there would be 10 people at the show, but they would come back and, um, I just, yeah, I love Bart Market. I, I love their bass player too. He was, he was a big influence on me. Um, uh, Agent Orange came through during that time. So, it, you know, it got better. Like there was a more variety over time. <laughs> uh, once the nineties kind of kicked in. 
Right. Um, but yeah, but those early bands, it, you know, it was just basically metal and thrash. And, and then it kind of started veering into a little bit of like more hardcore, like, you know, helmet or clutch crowbar, you know, where it was more focused on heaviness with a groove. And, you know, and then at that point I was discovering bands like quicksand, um, Bart market. Uh, and that was opening my mind up to heaviness, but more like intelligent heaviness. Yes. I mean, uh, that's so funny. You say that progression, um, because I, I've, if you've listened to anything, I do mention Helmet once in a while. That is my other favorite band of all time. I have everything by them, every oh. vinyl release, like every single thing, and obsessed. And, um, you know, just it was that band that seeing watching Headbangers Ball and being a metal kid and loving hardcore, like you said, like finding a quicksand or whatever. But then also, I still loved metal. I loved Pantera. I loved all, but then seeing the Helmet video. And being like, oh wait, these guys don't have long hair. It's a little bit like it's a little bit more mathy. It's got like, and then they were like, oh, they're on this label, Amrep. What's what's amphetamine reptile? Right. What's that? And same thing with like crowbar, finding out about metal blade or clutch, finding out you know that whole world, um, you know, finding them, and then what? Who else around that time? Probably like, um, uh, not at the gates. Who's the other like? doomy like sort of like um groove uh not strapping young lad what the fuck corrosion of conformity like that same kind of oh yeah 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 like that southern thing but it was it felt like it had a little bit more to it and helmet to me was this like oh wait a minute like it sounds so simple but they you know they came up with it and you're right it was that alt wave a little bit um but it, like you said, it it was it it was mathy to me. I had to think a little bit further, right? Yeah, it definitely stimulated that part of, that part of my brain as well. Like just the the odd time signatures and the way the drums fit with the groove on the guitar and bass. Uh, yeah, it was it was it was like a growing period for me. Uh, and, and also plus just their image, Yeah, you know, they're, they're just wearing polos <laughs> and they're like have buzz cuts, right? You know, it's like, Whoa, like that's not, that's not the, like the long haired head banging thing I'm used to seeing, <laughs> you, you know? Right. Uh, so even that was revolutionary to me. Um, but yeah, so, so it kind of, you know, it, um, yeah, so those early bands, it, it's that was kind of tra sort of transitioning, you know, into that. Um, and you know, I bet at the same time, you know, I've got there's like this like ebullition thing mm -hmm. under all of that of bands that I've been listening to. How did you find um, that shit? Because I found it so much later. Maybe because I was in a small town or we didn't have the right record buyer at the at the local shop. Like, how did did they come through Tulsa? Some of those bands. No, it was all heart attack, maximum rock and roll, like that whole thing. Right. Uh, and that was that word of mouth thing, you know, like running into someone at the mall who had a, you know, uh, his hero was gone shirt on or something, mm -hmm. you know, just like 
what? <laughs> or, or as simple as, like I said earlier, dude, that guy has a pair of Vans on. I'm going right. to talk to him. <laughs> you know, it was like this totally. little community. Um, or, you know, we, we would occasionally in Tulsa have like the random skate demo, like mm-hmm. uh, all of a sudden, uh, um, you know, Tony Hawk is in town doing a skate demo or Jason Lee or Tony Magnuson from eighth street or something. And then you run, you run into like this handful of people in town that showed up to that. And then you start communicating and sharing ideas and bands and that kind of thing. And so, you know, that's how I found out about it too. But I, I feel like I remember at one time, Heart Attack or Maximum Rock and Roll was actually in Borders or Barnes and Noble or something where it was just way easier to find and get. Um, but, you know, too, I, there was a scene during that era in Little Rock, Arkansas and like Hot Springs, Arkansas. And it was kind of that early emo scene that I, I don't know if a lot of people know about it. it. Like there were bands like Full Service Quartet, William Arter 17, uh, Basil was another band. Uh, but there was this really like thriving happening scene in Arkansas during that time. And so I started traveling to Arkansas to see those bands play. And, you know, so I started learning about more bands. You know, that's where I learned about Cap Jazz. Wow. What you know, labels were those like bands that. on again? Oh, dude, it was like small, small, like, uh, you know, 50 pressing wow. one time thing. You, you know, it was. And this was early 90s? Rare. Yeah, early 90s. Uh, and they. I can't remember the name of it, but there was a documentary on the Arkansas scene made during that time. And it came out in the early nineties. It was like on VHS. Wow. It, and I've seen it once or twice. It's, it's really hard to find. You can, now it's probably on YouTube somewhere. You could probably get pretty easy access to it, but I should revisit that and try to find it. How did you find out about that yeah, scene? Well, being living in Oklahoma, uh, you know, through those interactions with people like I've talked about, you know, I find out, oh, there's like there's a show happening in Hot Springs, Arkansas mm-hmm. with all these bands playing and it's at a VFW hall. So I'm like, man, that sounds awesome. I'm going to check that out. So, you know, I drive over to Arkansas and there's another hundred kids that I've never seen before. Right. In Arkansas. You know, and there's like 15 bands playing that day. And whoa, there's like, uh, there's like someone over here with a, a distro table selling records. And oh, there's this band Captain Jazz for sale. Oh, there's this band Current for sale. You know, so it's then, you know, you start meeting more people and you're just, your world just starts expanding, you know. And then you find out, oh, next weekend at, this house on this street, this band full service quartets playing. Mm -hmm. So you go back and then like I'm in this living room with 200 people, you know, that traveled from Memphis and Birmingham and 
you know, you know what I mean? So it's mm-hmm. just like your world just starts expanding. And, uh, so that was like a, how I got introduced into, to all that. And, and that's when that whole, you know, that whole scene started to incorporate itself more and more into my influences as well. And that around that time was right before I moved to, uh, the West coast. And that was, that was when things really started changing for me. I, um, why did you move? I was just tired of Tulsa. Mm -hmm. Like I, I didn't, you know, I was, I was finding, you know, I found like a community, the Arkansas community, there was, you know, a tiny one here, you know, I had a couple of friends who I'd go skating with and stuff, but, but still I, I wanted to play music. That was my dream. I, I just wanted to be in a, a real band and do what real bands do, you know, put out records <laughs> right. and go on tour. And, and I, I just, I didn't have it here and I couldn't find it. It, there was just no opportunity for me. So, um, at that time I was in a band with some guys from Arkansas, uh, called Katechumen. And it was, that band was, we were really influenced by like early today is the day. And, uh, oh, hell yeah. uh, you know, it was just real angular, noisy. I'm all over uh, that, Jonathan. <laughs> Yeah, really fun band. And we, uh, so a a couple of us, you know, got in a van and we moved up to uh, Portland. Wow. And, um, but through circumstances, it just fell apart. Uh, that the idea of the band just fell apart. So, but I had taken my first step in my journey to find what I wanted which was music and to experience playing in a band and going on tour and putting out records. So, uh, so I just started kind of hopping around the West coast. Like I, uh, my friend, Andrew Rizek, uh, who, uh, he played uh, guitar in the band Le Shock. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was down at long beach. So I went down and spent some time with him and you know got to experience that whole scene you know zed records and Mm -hmm. uh at that time the long beach bands there's this thing called emission i think uh just experiencing that whole scene was another huge uh step forward to me uh you know just the hardcore scene down there uh it's just so rich there were so many people into it. So, but I, I didn't quite find exactly what I wanted down there. So I thought, well, uh, I'll come back up to Portland for a bit. And then that uh, that's around that time, my friend, Matt Johnson, who would eventually become the drummer in Roadside Monument. Uh, we were talking on the phone and he said, well, hey, you should come up to Seattle uh, you can just sleep on our couch here at the house and yeah, let's do it. So wow. I said, okay. So went up to Seattle and that's when the dam just broke open at that point. I mean, that was just like, 
um, I remember within the first week I lived there, you know, I, I was in the U district, so I'm just walking around and I'm, you know, I'm passing like Lane Staley, wow. Allison chains on the street, go, you know, going to the crocodile and Eddie Vedder standing over there against the wall. You know, it was just this whole, uh, whole like non rock star world. Like nobody cared. Like anyone that was local there didn't care that Eddie Vedder was standing against the wall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just, he was, he was like a buddy, you know, or Lance, Lance Staley was like a buddy or, um, you know, I got a job there and every day I'd get in the elevator and Chris Novoselic would be in the elevator with me. Wow. Like going to his, his office. And it was just so normal. And there was no, the idea of being starstruck just didn't exist there. So it was just, it was just awesome. You know, it was just everyone hanging out with everybody. And I think it must have been because people were so disillusioned by the grunge thing that happened there that they just wanted to feel normal again, Mm -hmm. I think. You know, they just wanted to feel like a close community again. So there was no kind of, you know, I'm I'm the big guy on MTV. You know, it's like, no, I'm just the guy on the elevator with you. How's your day? Right. So... So I thought that that was a, another huge progression for me, um, just being able to experience that. But also, then, you know, so at that time, oh, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say, just you know, you mentioning those people and like, you know, knowing that they were in this thing and they kind of had this still DIY thing. I mean, Seattle is isolated; it's hard to get to somewhere. It's not New York to Boston to Philly that type of thing. Um, or even LA up to San Francisco, you know, that still seems closer for some reason. And, um, I love that part of that area. And also, you know, find, you know, how much Eddie was down with all these bands and like, you know, loved Fugazi and loved all that stuff. Like, so they were big, but you knew that they came from this same, they came from that sort of same, a lot of them did Eddie, especially. Right. It, it was punk rock. Yeah. To me, that's how I saw it. I, to me, I, I saw Pearl Jam as like being another punk rock band or Nirvana being a punk rock band or Alice in Chains. That, that, and, and maybe, too, that, was, that came from me coming from Tulsa because me, you know, growing up in Tulsa, you know, listening to, you know, Minor Threat, and then at the same time I was listening to the Smiths and then I had a Pantera record too. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it was all this, um, it was all this counter to me. It was all counterculture. It was, it, to me, it was not the society that I grew up in in Tulsa. It wasn't the church or right. it wasn't the conservatism it, it, like I said earlier, it was my way out. And, and to me, I didn't, I mean, I knew they all sounded different musically. And I got the idea that, you know, Morrissey probably didn't want to have anything to do with Phil and Selmo, you know? Right. I mean, that was kind of obvious. But to me, there were all these bands that helped me find a way out and helped me express 
my feelings. So I think, you know, when, when I was in Seattle, that's why I saw bands like Pearl Jam as being like minor threat. Right. You know, it was, to me, it was all the same pot I was digging out of. And then how about, you know, the, you seeing those bigger guys, but then getting into roadside and how did that come about um, for you? You, you, being in that area, you probably had seen them or heard of them before, correct? Well, I, I started to meet people really fast, especially because I was living in this house called the House of Funk, and it was kind of Grand Central Station for for that whole scene. Not not like the Pearl Jam scene and stuff, but this right. little community like Matt Johnson and Damian Gerardo, uh Dave Bazan from Pedro the Lion, um, like that whole scene, like I believe like right before I got there, Damien Gerardo, he lived on the front porch wow. of the House of Funk. So, you know, every day I would wake up and those people were at the house. So I was meeting people really, really quick. And I remember, uh, there was, I remember there was a show at the house and, uh, uh, Jeremy Enoch showed up and just played solo in the living room. And he, uh, and I, you know, huge sunny day real estate fan, like being in Tulsa, um, loved them so much. And so, you know, within a handful of months, to be like sitting on the couch that I slept on every night and Jeremy Enoch sitting in front of me playing with, and then finding out that he was friends with all the people I was living in the house with was just insane to me. <laughs> uh, you know, it was just so beautiful. You know, it was like, wow. I was like, I've like, I found it. I've found what I'm looking for. I, I've, I've been looking for this community of people that I can be in and play music with and, and talk about bands with and listen to records with and, you know, go on walks with and nerd out about, you know, the Smiths or it was just so beautiful. It, it really was one of the, the best times of my life because I, I just, everything, the doors just blew open. And, and so, you know, just meeting all these people and, uh, and then I heard about this band Roadside Monument and they were recording their first record beside this brief hexagonal, uh, at a vast, which was a, a local recording studio. So I thought, um, well, I'm going to, I'm just going to go up to the studio and hang out. You know, I just took that initiative mm -hmm. because it, everyone was so welcoming there and, I thought, well, hey, these are friends with all these other people, so I'll just go up and say hi, introduce myself, and check it out. So, went into the studio, hung out with him. I, I can I can remember all of us even sitting on the couch in the in the in the studio, like all packed together, you know, like on this couch. And it was the first time I'd ever met them, but yet I felt comfortable enough to just sit squished in on this couch with them. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it, it, that's, if I can give you an idea of how welcoming it was and how 
non-pretentious it was. So I became friends with them and especially became friends with Doug Lorig, who played guitar in the band. And um, about that time, he told me that their bass player, Todd, was going to be quitting. And so I immediately volunteered. I said, I'll do it. And at that time, most of my experience with playing bass had been in Tulsa, playing in those bands where I would just bang on the E string, you know, <laughs> as, as hard as I could. So I had, I had, when I moved to Seattle, I had started one band uh, uh, called Fells Way. And it, it was kind of like, imagine like a, probably my biggest influence at that time was Current. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other guys in the band were real influenced by like Drive Like Jehu. Um, and Matt Johnson played drums in that band. But we played, I think we played two shows. And that, Fellsway was the first time that I was able to fully express myself on a bass guitar where I, something clicked where I figured out the beginning of who I was when I played music. And, and it was a eureka moment. I'll never forget it. We, it was, it was in the living room of the house of funk. We were recording and I was playing this bass line that I wrote and I just remember Eben, the other guitar player, coming in with something. And then uh, Josh, the other guitar player, coming in with something. And Matt coming in with something. And then all of a sudden, we're making this music that I feel 100%. It wasn't just me banging on an E string anymore. It wasn't me um, making noise. It was actually thought out and... Uh, and it felt like it was a part of all of us. And it just that, that feeling of um, just of joy and bliss, I'll never forget it. And I, and that was the moment where I started, I felt like I started to become who I was as a bass player and a, and a musician. So, so when I volunteered to be in Roadside Monument, I I had had that experience, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I still really didn't know what I was doing. Like I, I, I didn't really know how to play bass. I just knew that sometimes I put my fingers places on the instrument and it sounded good to me. That's, that's where I was with it. So, but I didn't, I wasn't nervous about joining roadside monument or anything like that. I, I had a confidence because I, I knew how bad I wanted it, how bad I wanted to be in a band and play music. Right. So I, I had a, just a feeling of confidence about it, that it was just going to work. So, so at that point, you know, I started rehearsing with roadside and our sound started changing uh, I felt like I was bringing in an influence of bands like Current and that whole ebullition scene uh, that I had come out or, you know, that was so important to me in Tulsa. 
And there was one band, I'm curious if you remember them. Uh, they were called uh, Evergreen. Uh, and I believe they were from Southern California. Barely. Tell me. They were, oh man, they, uh, I, I, I think the bass player went on to play an Antioch Arrow, possibly. Oh, that rings a bell. But, uh, but man, the bass player in this band Evergreen, and it's not the Louisville Evergreen, it's the Southern California Evergreen, uh, just was a huge influence on me. So I think that as, as we started writing with Roadside Monument, I think the bass player of Evergreen really helped me find a place in Roadside. And so I just, we just started making this music that was different than their first album. It, you know, uh, it was, their first album was kind of more, you know, like a jangly pop record, like tree people or Sebado or something. And, you know, we started kind of turning into this kind of early emo, uh, kind of like the basement shows I was going to, you mm -hmm. know, before I showed up. Uh, and, you know, we were really, you know, we were hugely influenced like by Rodan and Flint and that kind of thing too. So yeah, that, you know, we just started and it just clicked. Doug, Matt and I uh, just clicked so well musically and we could read each other so well. And it, it was another, and, you know, realizing that was another moment that, for me that just, um, finally I found it, <laughs> you know, I found what I traveled halfway across the country for, you know, just with these two guys, I had like my brothers and, and this music that we could just go in and create with honestly, without thinking much. Wow. Uh, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing, like, with our first record, eight hours away from being a man, you know, we're just walking in Robert Lang's studio in Seattle, uh, you know, huge studio like Nirvana recorded there and all these bands. And that was a first for me, you know, and, and we're working with Bob Weston, right. Who was a hero of ours. Um, you know, we love shellac. Um, Volcano Suns, you know, and all of a sudden we're in the three of us in the stu studio and like we've written these songs and we had no idea like what we were doing. <laughs> you know, I, I still need, didn't even really know how to play bass. I, I was just putting my fingers places and turning on the distortion pedal when it sounded right or, you know, so it was very innocent and naive. Um, but at the same time, I feel like our energy and excitement and the confidence that we had, even though we were so naive, just created this thing that like just made total sense. <laughs> what about the, what I, I want to get into a couple of things with, with roadside, but since you mentioned it first, which is uh, rare, usually I have to bring it up the word emo. So did you, you did you hear it back? in Tulsa did you start to sort of hear it more and what was your feelings toward it well I I I feel like the first time I heard emo was in Tulsa um or heard the word and I can't remember exactly where but you know uh I'm sure it was something to where I I heard rites of spring for the first time and someone said oh this is emo or 
or sunny day real estate, you know, or, or being in, uh, in Arkansas, one of those shows. Right. Um, you know, I'm sure that's how I was introduced to that word. And I, you know, to me, I, I didn't have any kind of problem with it. To me, it was like a way to describe this music that I was hearing, Mm -hmm. you know, like, um, you know, and also, you know, back then, like I've said, I didn't really have the whole, I didn't, I wasn't really conscious of the genre thing so much, uh, you know, taking it back even farther. Like I remember being at a freestyle bike competition in the eighties and, uh, one of the dudes riding the doing his routine was listening to Bon Jovi as he did his routine. And I was standing next to this, like this punk guy. And I remember like the Bon Jovi song coming on and I was kind of singing along to it. And he turned and looked at me. He's like, he's like, you like Bon Jovi? I was like, yeah, man. He's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I don't know. I just like the song, (laughs) you know? And I had no (laughs) idea that I wasn't supposed to like that. Right but also like minor threat. I just didn't know that, that I, you know, so, um, so, you know, fast forwarding to the emo thing. I, to me, it was just, Oh, a word I'm hearing that's describing this music. Okay, cool. I'll go with it. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like an important thing to me. I, I actually kind of like that. I, it, again, there was, it, it was it was started as a snide comment. There's a certain subset which will continue that, but then there's also people that were like, "Well, it got me into this band," or other other bands say, "Well, it's why we're still a band." <laughs> that that word, sure things are going to move, hmm. um, which which I like. But the other part about roadside, which I don't know if I had a different introduction, which maybe. Um, doesn't ma- doesn't matter with this story or does, but just because I was in the school in the South and I had friends that were from that background. I mean, I had no, I had very few, very, very religious friends, you know, the, in the Northeast. And this was like, you know, the, I mean, what is it in Charlotte? Like 10 churches in one liquor store, like as you drive, like that's just how you can count whatever the, the number is. Uh, yeah. Right, you actually had a liquor store. <laughs> well, just like Joe, well, maybe what's maybe it wasn't a <laughs> right. liquor store, but it was something like you know you would pass ten churches and then you would see something else. And right, that I remember that group of kids and friends saying like, "Hey, check out Tooth and Nail." And to me, I was like, "Cool, another label." And I would I would hear Roadside or hear these things, and then someone would say like, "Oh, well." they're all, you know, Christian bands. And I was like, well, whatever, you know, <laughs> like, that's, you know, it's, it's, uh, um, so from that, from that regard, uh, was that something that, I mean, it almost was like an instant audience, um, that you could, you had distribution for certain stores. Like, um, was, did that, did that seem like a, even more than emo, did it seem like that affected, the audience or people listening to you back then? Yes, it did. It, in a lot of different ways, Roadside Monument wasn't, we were on tooth and nail, but we didn't consider ourselves a Christian band or even in that scene. 
like we we would book our own tours yeah uh we we weren't you know we would play like we would play the fireside ball with don caballero right you know so we were like we were like outside of that but at the same time our records were going through tooth and nails distribution which would put us into these christian bookstores so but at the same time those christian bookstores didn't like us because you know of like a song title or sperm ridden burden probably leads sperm to the list. Ridden burden right so we were just kind of like we don't give a fuck like you know what i mean like right. if you don't want to carry it don't carry it that we're we're not interested we're not interested in you carrying our cd anyway you know but you know when i look back i also see that a lot of kids you know who grew up in the tooth and nail scene that was their only way of buying music correct so they're their only place to go was that Christian bookstore. And then they would see this roadside monument CD. If it even got in there, (laughs) you know, and they, they would pick it up and then take it home and be like, Whoa, this doesn't sound like any other tooth and nail band. What is this? Right. And they would start to connect over it. And I think even today, like, I'll talk to people and meet people that have said that go them going into that Christian bookstore and seeing eight hours away from being a man and buying it like really affected their life. Like it, it got, it allowed them to get in to that kind of music and it opened doors from, for them into thinking new ways about music. I think, and so I, I think that's really cool, you know? Yeah. I also, I love your, the roadside position because it didn't get tagged. It didn't get, sorry, didn't get tagged as emo, but even though it sort of had some of the same worlds, it was angular enough. So you could play with Don Cab. And then you had this math rock thing, which I was, I think I was more into that. Like I, the, the chaotic, the, the screaming, the, the, the time signatures, like the, I'm all over that. That that was like where I <clears throat> that's where I really found that sweet sauce. So it was almost like Roadside had this, you know, it was on a Christian label, but it wasn't emo. It had math rock, and it's almost like you were, um, uh, you know, it was like a Trojan horse inside of that Christian bookstore. Because I talked to a lot of friends, right. some of them that are in bands later that were like the same thing. Roadside was different, and when I heard it, I was like, "This is different. This is not." You know, all the solid state stuff, which I love, ton of those bands, Spitfire, um, you know, a ton of those things, like super cool. But this felt like out of place, but then almost like like a Trojan horse. That's a really cool way to to describe it. Um, Yeah. So, you know, that the whole uh, the whole Christian band tag was really hard for us and it it made us have to work a hundred times harder as a band mm-hmm. uh just because you know this was 90s to the nail right uh where it, it was um a lot of people looked down on that label because of the the christian connection so we you know and we got thrown in with that so 
you know, we're, our whole thing is, Hey, we're, we want to play fireside bowl with Don Caballero or, you know, we're playing in, you know, in, uh, uh, Baltimore with Hurl or something like that. You know, that was our mindset. That's where we were. But there were people that saw that we were on tooth and nail who wouldn't book us at a club, uh, or, you know, we'd get a lot of side eye glances, you wow. know, uh, like, like people turning their backs on us or something. Um, so yeah. And so it was hard for us and being in Seattle, it was hard too. Uh, you know, cause in the nineties in Seattle, tooth and nail was definitely not the cool label to be on. So, but we were a Seattle band, you know, we would play the velvet Elvis, you know, we would play the crocodile. We, that was our scene. That was our home, but it, you know, we weren't as easily accepted there because of the tooth and nail association. Mm -hmm. So we had to work harder to get those shows and to play with those bands. Uh, we kind of, we had to prove ourselves to be honest. Wow. Uh, um, yeah, it, it was, and it got really tiring. Uh, it, it was, you know, we felt like we were a good band and we were proud of what we were accomplishing. And we felt like, yeah, I mean, of course we can play the Velvet Elvis, you know, of course we can play with Don Caballero. Like we, we just felt like a kinship with them because that's who we were. But it's almost like we had to prove to those people that we weren't like fanatical, like evangelicals or something. <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, which we weren't, I mean, that's just not who we were. So, um, so yeah, it was a really interesting time. Uh, and I think through roadside's history, you know, with our next record, I am the day of current taste. We had become friends with the Jade tree crew, mm -hmm. uh, with Tim Owen and, we became friends with him and he was really into the band. So that was cool for us because it, you know, it, it kind of, that helped give us a little recognition, you know, like mm -hmm. that we weren't like the crazy Christian fanatic band people or something that, no, we're actually a real band who work our ass off, who books our own tours and like, um, drives around the country in a shitty van and breaks down all the time. Just like, all these other bands do, you know, we're, we're in the same scene. So I think the J tree recognition definitely helped us along that. And, and then we got on the uh, crank records. Don't forget to breathe comp. Um, and that was another step forward for us. Um, so, yeah, I mean, before we, we broke up, uh, I, I felt like we were getting, finally getting to a point where I, I think we were a little more respected and not looked down upon, uh, or, or, you know, or being feared that we, that we were something that we weren't, you know? Right. But it just a weird feeling. Like I, I just, I had a really quick experience with this at equal vision where they thought every band was Bane or Krishna. And it was hard to 
get someone to like be like, this wasn't a hardcore record. It was a band that sounds like Wilco and it was hard and you wouldn't get the callbacks. You wouldn't get the, the indie band to even take your call. And it took time. And I feel like there were these bands that we had that I feel like if, I don't know, I I sometimes think, Oh God, wish they were on another label. (laughs) Even though I love the music. Yeah. You know, it's a funny story is, um, you know, like I said, we, we would book all our own tours and uh, Doug was the guy that would be on the phone, on the landline, you mm-hmm. know, calling all these clubs. And what we learned was when, when the promoter asked what label we were on, if we said tooth and nail, they wouldn't book us. Wow. But we figured out that Tooth and Nail at that time went through Caroline Distribution. So you'd say Caroline? So Doug, yeah, so Doug would start saying we were on Caroline Records. <laughs> and it was like instant. Yeah, of course. What day do you want? You know? So we would book tours that way. We would just say we were on Caroline Records and easily book a tour. Wow. That's nuts. <laughs> it's just not even mentioning really your label. Well, <laughs> hey, when we send well, I mean, these we posters, do... there's a mistake. It says tooth and nail. <laughs> it's supposed to say Caroline. Right. Don't worry about it. Just put up the posters. <laughs> well, I mean, we, you know, we had to survive, man. We had to right. do what we had to do to play shows. Like, and that we were going to do whatever we had to do to get on the road and tour. And, um, you know, and that, that was, Personally, that's why I left my home. Right. You know, that's why I traveled across the country. I wanted to tour. I wanted to be a band. So we were going to fight for it. You know, that's what we wanted. And we were going to make it happen no matter what, no matter what we had to do. Right. How about thinking back? You know, I know you had a little reunion for a minute. Um, What about thinking back today? Like if you're thinking about roadside and those moments and yes, nothing can change and it's all this is what, what happened to it. But looking back, do you have different thoughts about it or feelings? I'm I'm sure people come up to you. Yeah. For like, I'm sure every unwed show, there's a kid that's going to come up and give you that same roadside story. Right. Yeah. And I love it, man. I, I love roadside monuments so much. Like it, like I, I said earlier, like that, time of my life when I was in Seattle and playing in Roadside Monument was the best time of my life. It, it was so magical and beautiful. Uh, you know, it was like, like my salad days. Right. Uh, it was just perfect. And so I love talking about it with people and hearing how it affected people and hearing their stories, uh, you know, of how, what the records did for them or the shows they saw. And I, you know, I'm still in fairly regular contact with Matt and Doug. Like I, I can, I still consider them dear close friends. That's amazing. So I, um, they're very important people in my life. Um, and I know whenever I'm in Seattle, like they're the first people I want to see and hang out with. And when I'm with them, it's like, 
1997. You know, it, it's like nothing's changed. Like we were, it just feels, I, I just feel good when I'm with them. Uh, and, and, you know, we did, we got back together in the early 2000s and then we did a reunion show, I don't know, three years ago or so. And um, it was just, it was just magical. I mean, getting in the room with him and playing those songs again. And it just, it works. It, it, there's just a chemistry between us as friends and as musicians that just works. So I, I celebrate Roadside Monument. I, I, I still love that band so much. I love that. I love that. There's, there's a, there's a happy ending to it. There's a, uh, not ending. There's, 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 there's good feelings about, everything and that hearing from people. I just think sometimes, um, you know, that, that call to that venue that he said, Caroline, there was probably someone there that saw it and changed their life or made them want to listen. And I think, you know, if I'm speaking directly to the people that are listening, you know, if, 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 if you want something that's, that's not, um, and I'm, I'm saying this in front of you too, it's like, it's not easy. You know, there isn't this structure to it which I had a hard time when I first listened to it. It wasn't what I was used to. And I think hearing it now, I, thinking and having to like listen to it again or understand something, um, I think when I was at that age, I wanted to be, ch- I, I, wouldn't, I didn't realize I wanted to be as challenged and this kind of pushed it further. And I think those have longevity. Those records have longevity. And I'm, I'm so happy that people are still coming up to you and that, um, you know, you had that reunion show and best of all, you're, you're still talking to them. Yeah, man. And, and that, that's such a good point. Like you're talking about those records that challenge you though, you know, the records that I found in Tulsa that challenged me, uh, Bart market gimmick, mm-hmm. uh, today is the day willpower quicksand slip, um, you know, these, those, just to name the ones off the top of my head, right? like those records challenged me. Like they, I listened to them and they initially, they caught me, but I didn't understand why. And they just made me want to dive in more and understand why I felt so connected to them. So to be able to create a record like that, with other people is just the ultimate compliment to me. Uh, I, those are the kind of records I want to make. I want to make the records that, that are life changing, or maybe you don't understand it when you first hear it, but a, a month down the road, you're like, why do I have this like in my player every day? <laughs> totally. <laughs> you, you know, like, and those are the records you connect with and they become part of your being, uh, which in our earlier talk, you know, when I was talking about that, that's how I was saying how I miss those kind of musical experiences that challenge you. And then the records eventually just become part of you. Uh, so yeah, those are the kind of records I want to make. So hearing that, hearing you describe those records that way just means everything. It's such a compliment. Awesome. Well, I know there's a lot more people and I think I'm echoing a lot that 
I, it, there might have been a band that got popular or that was you were on tour with or you at the same time ended up doing X. But I know it doesn't equal in the bank account. But I think from a inspirational or a, a memory, those things last longer, and there, it just it's it's it needs to be talked about more. I think roadside's not mentioned enough um, in the conversation, and I know there's a lot of people that agree with me on that. Um, and so I hope that more people dive in and 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 kind of maybe challenge themselves and maybe think back okay let me let me go back to 97 and and listen to those that way <laughs> uh, yeah and that's you know that's another really fun thing about music that i really enjoy is is when you pull out a record that maybe you've never listened to but someone has recommended and they say something to the effect of hey this think about this in a way that this challenged might challenge you or it challenged me. Check it out. Is that I love listening to records in the time frame they were released, you know, right. like thinking, Oh yeah, this came out in 97. Like putting it into that kind of perspective is really fun because I feel like it, uh, it, it makes it a richer experience when you listen to it. It like puts you into that, that, era or that time period and it it just expands the record and how you hear it right I, I, I love listening to records like that well if we're gonna it i did this exact thing so when i heard you know that unwed sailor they had this you know you had the firecracker ep and i remember getting it at the radio station in college and i stole it um they didn't want it of course i do um i still have it um <laughs> You know, f realizing, okay, this is X members of Roadside. Of course, I'm going to listen to this. This is cool. Oh, wait, this is instrumental. This is like ambient, like post. Like I was, I think maybe a lot of, not a lot of people know, but like that is my other favorite genre. Like if I could join Mogwai or like an instrumental band, like that is what I would do um, in a heartbeat. I wouldn't be in a hardcore oh, cool. band. I wouldn't be in a screamo band. I wouldn't be in an emo band. I would just want to make like instrumental atmospheric, like if Jimmy from album leaf would let me just hang out, I would do it. So when I heard, you know, unwed, I was starting to move in that kind of like, I needed to be pushed a little bit further. And so hearing that, um, kind of did that. So for, you know, for you, um, you know, just, just describing that, did that, did that scratch another itch for you being able to kind of do this on your own? Well, I, f I feel that Unwed Sailor was the next step for me musically in that I feel like it got, Unwed Sailor got more personal. Mm -hmm. uh, Unwed Sailor was and is more of a reflection of me personally than with Roadside. Roadside was a reflection of me, Doug, and Matt together and unwed sailor was kind of like my inner being uh with me playing with my friends who helped me express my inner being and I, the reason i say that is because when i look back on my life as like a little kid you know i the first music I ever listened to was classical music and 
and I loved movies, but I also loved the movie soundtracks as much as I loved the movies. So my whole thing when I was a little kid was I would, you know, this was like 70s and 80s. So my parents had one of those giant furniture like record players that had the eight track in it, the turntable in it, the radio in it. You know, it's like 10 feet long. (laughs) The speakers built into it. It's wood. Um, I would sit against the speaker and listen to classical music or movie soundtracks and read books at the same time. That was my idea of just the best thing I could do in the world. Mm -hmm. Like I, I would have friends you know, I would have friends call me be like, Hey, you want to go play with GI Joe's or hot wheels? Or I'd be like, I don't know, man, you want to come over and listen to records and read books? (laughs) You know, it, it was, that was the whole thing. I just loved having immersing myself in those two mediums at once. And, And what it allowed me to do was I'm listening to this instrumental music and I'm, reading a story so it's creating these images in my mind and almost even creating an alternate story to the story that I'm reading so that I that's was my start with music and I think with Unwed Sailor I I was able to channel that kid you know like little Jonathan that connection with music and storytelling i was able to connect that and that finally come to fruition in unwed sailor if that makes sense it does it It, does so i love that so i it was this new i was able to connect to this new part of me through unwed sailor that i wasn't able to connect with with roadside monument so i it was really freeing to me and you know i remember i remember being in chicago and hearing the mastered version of the firecracker ep and hearing you know ruby's wishes and firecracker and i was standing out on lake michigan and listening to that and i you know i just it was such an emotional moment for me because I, it, it was like that moment with Fellsway where I was first able to connect. I played something on the bass that worked with everyone else in the room playing with me, that Eureka moment. Right. And me standing on Lake Michigan hearing that EP, it was another one of those Eureka moments because I was like, like, this is what I hear inside of me. This is what I sound like on the inside. It was that kind of connection, like I finally, even though this is an instrumental record, this is my voice. This is what I sound like inside. And so it was just an amazing moment of being able to create something, create my voice, my personal voice. So Unlit Sailor just became a very personal outlet for me. Uh, And it, and it, and it has been a very personal, uh, it's, it's a very, sometimes with Unwed Sailor songs, I don't even know what I'm trying to express. 
but I know that it's coming deep within me. It's my voice and I'm, I'm working something out. And a lot of times I'll figure it out later, like two records later or something, but it's just a very personal expression for me. I love that. And then being instrumental, that's when, I mean, and I say this in a nice way, like I, I work to it or I'm relaxing to it. And like you said, sticking your head against the speaker reading, I can read with instrumental music. If I hear, it's funny, I remember least lyrics. Like if someone said, here's a lyric of a line, like, do you remember it? No, I have no idea. The the guitar riff? Yeah. The drum, the drum fill? For sure. Like, um, so for me, the being that, that personal, like it, it's, it, it, instrumental music or mostly instrumental music hits differently. Yes, me too. I, I'm, I'm very similar in, I don't, if I hear a song, I don't usually hear the lyrics. And a lot of times I'll have a hard time hearing the lyrics. Like even if I sit down and try to try to just be like, okay, what is this person saying? I still can't <laughs> decipher the lyrics. Right. And sometimes I get really frustrated by that because I, um, but there, there are, there are some artists who their lyrics really cut for me and, and I, they, I can hear. Um, but 95% of the time I, it, you know, it'll take me like two months from listening to a record and I'll be like, Oh, that's what he said. So that's what he's saying. I, See, I'm, I, I'm even worse than that. I don't even care. I'm just like, oh, I remember the lyrics okay, now. Okay. But no, it's just, but it, I, that goes back to the, the instrumental part of just like the, I love, I love, I, I play guitar. I love guitar. I love hearing instruments intersect without lyrics. Lyrics are the hardest, or singers are the hardest thing for me. Like if, if you have a bad singer, I'm, I'm, I, it's funny. If you have a bad singer, I'm out, but if you have a great singer, I'm going to keep listening, but I'm going to pay attention to everything else. Does that make sense? <laughs> right. <laughs> totally. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, like taking that mindset and, uh, putting that together with new order, uh, and Peter Hook specifically, Maybe that is one reason why I always connected with him and his bass playing so much is because his bass lines are basically instrumental vocal lines, right. in my opinion. Like he's singing on the bass, like that's his voice coming through. So I think that's why I've always connected to him so much. I love that. I, I, I know we're, it, this, I don't think consider this a tangent because I think it really, and it's not us making fun of any singers. There's lots of people we love and, and I love your band. I'm not making fun of you. Uh, if we, you know, Jeremy Enoch obviously love the singing, love how it connects. But f if we're talking about instrumental and like what I'm actually feeling, I'm feeling the bass, I'm feeling the drums and it, it, that's, that's hitting me first. Yeah, that's interesting, you know, and I wonder if that's the case with a lot of people and they don't necessarily realize it. You know, right. if you like pull the bass guitar out of a mix and you're definitely going to have something missing, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. It's, it's a lot, a lot has changed in every aspect of the song. And a big part is the emotional connection to the song.
in a band I was in, I had a bass player that played the root note. When I was playing something else, he would play the fifth or the root, and it blew my mind because it sounded huge. It sounded different. It sounded like, yeah, that was just a G, but it made it like bigger. And those kind of dynamics in an instrumental song, when you can have those happen, uh, to me is a sign that there's like, there's something deeper to it. And it's not just the same old song. Right. It, it creates that emotional pull right. that you're, you know, that you want to express. I mean, music has got to have that emotional pull for someone to, for the listener to respond and to feel something. Right. You know, music is emotional. That's why we listen to it. You know, whether you're listening to dance music or, uh, you're just trying to relax and forget about your problems for the day, or you're, you know, you're wanting to like get some aggression out. There's got to be that emotional pull and emotional connection in a song for the song to mean something. Right. It was funny. I was actually listening to, um, I got into, when I was early into guitar, I was really into Stevie Ray Vaughan. And I remember a lot of my friends were into like the shredders, Ingve and Steve Vai and all those guys. And I didn't hear the emotion, but you see Stevie mm-hmm. play, you know, the songs and you're like, okay, it's there. It is <laughs> like, sure. He's playing fast, right. but like, but I, he's, uh, he's definitely hitting the, he's hitting the, he's hitting the moment and it's not flashy, but it's like, it's, I don't know, tasteful. And so those things are, uh, I think, again, if we're talking, I, I just, I, I love hearing your thoughts about instrumental music and it's, it's enough about my examples, but it's just like, those are the, that's the reason why I think you having a voice, but it being instrumental plays a lot of, um, cards. It, it just, it, it, it lets the listener do what they want. It lets you, um, figure something out and, um, lets the imagination go, which is what first goes with all of us. We've got these, you know, stupid influences and things that affect us as we get older. But this seemed to just, especially with Unwed for me, it just, it, it, it let me do something along with the music while, while you were making it. That's great. You know, I, uh, this, this reminds me of, uh, something Brian Eno said one time that really stuck with me and really just blew my mind open. Uh, he was just describing instrumental music versus uh, a song with vocals. And his, his, uh, the way he described it was if, if you're standing there looking at a painting of this, uh, you know, you're looking at a painting and there's these mountains and rivers and beautiful blue sky and, trees and flowers and you painted this painting and then right in the middle of the painting you paint a person and then you look at this painting your attention instantly goes to that person right in the middle of the painting and he described that as being a song with vocals i love it but he said then you take that person out of the painting all of a sudden you're seeing the trees and the flowers and the clouds and the mountains and the rivers. You're seeing a bigger picture of the painting. And that's how he describes instrumental music. 
is that instrumental music, there's actually, you're, you're hearing more like on a grander scale being, being so tuned in to like a vocalist and their lyrics and their, their vocals. I love that. Yeah, it blew my mind when I heard that. <laughs> no, it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it right now because I, I, I don't know if, if I get raked over the coals for this or not, but it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's like, I'll use sunny day again. Like I absolutely love how it feels to be something on. I also love listening to it instrumental. Like I actually have actually helmet. I have aftertaste that album instrumental. Sometimes I just like listening oh, to weird. it instrumental because the, right. it's like, I, it's, it's a, it's a new way to hear these things. I like both. I want to go see it live. I want to hear it, of course. Um, but I, that, that experience part. So uh, hell yeah to Brian Eno. <laughs> yeah. It, well, and he's like one of the masterminds of instrumental music too, like right. ambient music for sure. Um, that's great. Um, yeah. Like talk about the new record. Yeah, uh, the new record, uh, it's called Truth or Consequences. Um, it is, it's a record that was recorded, it's actually been recorded over the past two or three years. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it's, there was a, a time period where Matt Putman, who's the drummer, and I, we had a studio set up at his house in Arkansas and we would, you know, just random weekends go in. I'd come in with, with bass ideas and bass structures. And by the end of the weekend, we'd have two or three songs. And so and we were just doing that a lot. So truth or consequences, it, even though it's a new record, there's songs that have been recorded over the past two or three years that just ended up on there. Um, so it's kind of a patchwork a little bit. Uh, but I, I also think it, it's also our last record look alive was recorded kind of similarly in that way. And I feel like look alive and truth or consequences are kind of sister records like they kind of make sense together in this weird way. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love truth or consequences. It, it, it's an extension of it, with look alive, our last record and truth or consequences. I've started really just like going all out with the bass guitar as far as like not necessarily worrying about how I'm going to pull something off live and just going, okay, there's four bases going right now and maybe I'm going to add a fifth one because mm -hmm. I think it needs it. Like, I'm just really, I feel like what's it, it's almost becoming more orchestral in that way where there's so many layers and so many melodies that are happening to where it's becoming like an orchestra or almost, you could say like classical music in a way. And where they're becoming more and more like mini soundtracks 
like little movie soundtracks uh, and less just instrumental rock songs. I love that. So yeah, it's, it's a, uh, it's kind of an expanded universe for Unwood Sailor. Um, and you know, it's funny with, with albums that Unwood Sailor puts out, it always takes me a second to kind of fully realize what it was <laughs> like it takes me a record or two down the road to kind of really put it all into perspective. And and there's moments on truth or consequences that still surprise me that I don't really understand what we were doing uh, because, because it was never anything I would intentionally do on a record. It just happened organically. And we came up with this really cool song that, doesn't sound like anything we've ever done in Unwood Sailor before, but there it is. So, but I'm really proud of it and I'm still trying to figure it out. So it's, it's a record that it's a real adventuresome record. Like there's songs on there that sound like nothing we have ever done before. And then there's songs that you're going to hear like an echo of the faithful anchor record in it or an echo of the firecracker EP. So yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's definitely a journey. Uh, it, it's also the way it's sequenced. I like to sequence records to where they kind of, you know, they almost like a movie or a story where they kind of have the beginning and they go to the peak and then they kind of go back down to the end credits kind of thing. <laughs> uh, I, I like doing that a lot. Do you know and what this sounds like to me? I think what? It, I mean, it, as you're talking, it's like you are that kid again. You have this innocence of trying things and being okay with it. Remember as a kid, you didn't care what you said. You didn't care um, before you realized what wasn't cool, what wasn't before that person told you Bon Jovi wasn't cool. You just did it. And at the same time, you're singing uh, you're in, in, inside of finding your voice. So it's like, it's, this is that, this is that next thing where you're still that innocent kid making stuff. Yeah, man, absolutely. I thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> that makes sense. It, and, you know, with, with truth or consequences or with any Unwood Sailor record, I've found that the key to writing these songs and making these records is to not try like don't don't sit down and try to write a song like let let it come out naturally let the song come to you let the song be what it is like there's a, a certain a song that when i'm talking about a song that we've never done anything like it before it's a song called ajo and it's a real the main bass line is so dopey and just like ridiculous. And that, that was the first bass line I wrote for the song. And I remember thinking, what am I going to do with this? Like th this is just the dopiest thing I've ever heard in my life. But at the same time, I thought, but this dopey little thing like came out of me. So it's pure. There's something there. So I took that dopey little bass line in 
and started writing bass lines over that dopey little bass line. And then Matt Pubman came in and, and wrote this like angular post-rock, like funky drum beat under it to where we're creating this like basically a dance song. And then uh, Dave Swatzel, the guitar player, came in and starts playing this almost nursery rhyme guitar. You know, something that would be on the Marionette and the Music Box album. And then I go to the keyboards and I start, I find this sound that sounds like whales speaking to each other. And so I start writing these melodies that sound like whales swimming around each other and communicating with each other. So all of a sudden we have this dopey bass line with this like funk post rock dance drum beat with a nursery rhyme guitar and whales singing over it. And there it is. There's, there's a new Unwed Sailor song, something we've never done before. But the fact that when I wrote that first dopey bass line that I thought, what could I ever do with this? If I would have thrown that away, then we wouldn't have that crazy orchestrated sound of whales and nursery rhymes and funk and it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it's just um, and that's just so that's one of the funnest aspects of songwriting is just letting go like nothing's dumb you know if something's coming from you and you're, you're sitting there and you're playing and something's come from you like believe in that and trust in that and I think like you're saying that goes back to the childhood thing you know of letting your you know tr- just letting your imagination go and trusting in yourself and being comfortable in yourself like sitting there listening to those records and coming up with those stories in your head Jonathan that was perfect well I'm I'm glad you connect with that did you have uh, fun well yeah I yeah dude of course I had fun I always have fun talking with you <laughs> <laughs> I don't know you do a lot of podcasts guess, sometimes you know I never know well you know but but I but you know our conversations have always been, uh, I don't know, they've just been easy and, uh, you know, I feel like we can go places with each other when we talk. Mm-hmm.